Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 117 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, ready to take on this discussion at any size, is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Hello! This week we are covering the sequel to the 2015 hit and one of Aaron's favorite Marvel characters, Ant-Man. It's got jokes, it's got heart, and it's got quantum being used more than a few times in it. But before we go there, I wanted to hijack the conversation uh, first and foremost to talk about the recently released documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, which my wife and I recently got a chance to see in the theaters. And I was wondering if, uh, Aaron, you were cool with that? Yeah, I'm absolutely down to talk about that movie. That's good. Now, when it comes to documentaries, I don't know if we can technically say there are spoilers because there's not really a plot. There's really just information done in a really creative way, I guess you could call that. But if you can so, Google it and it's real life, it's not a spoiler. Okay. So spoiler alert, I guess. Um, this is a documentary that came out this year by a uh, by Morgan Neville. He's the director of it. And it really chronicles the life of Fred Rogers growing up and getting into his, of course, famous show, uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Now, Aaron, I'm assuming, since we're about the same age, that maybe you grew up watching Mr. Rogers on PBS? Shocker, I did not. Now, did I, not. Did, okay. I did grow up during the time of Mr. Rogers, and I have definitely seen Mr. Rogers in my lifetime, but I was not one of those kids who was stuck parked in front of the TV for every episode. I don't have a huge history with him. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of in that camp. I remember having a period of time where that was part of my morning routine. Mr. Rogers would be on right before school. I'd watch maybe about two thirds of an episode. And then I think sometimes it would be on in the afternoons. I know during the summers when I had nothing to do with my life, uh, Mr. Rogers was part of my morning routine and I got to watch more episodes and I've always been fascinated with him as a person. I I guess I thought there was a biography of him that released several years ago, but I think I'm wrong. There's one coming out in September that's more of an expansion of what this documentary hits on that I'm really interested in reading. But this documentary was absolutely fascinating in terms of giving us probably as clear a picture of the life of Fred Rogers in its entirety, as much as it could. And it pulls at the heartstrings on a number of occasions. And there are several moments in the documentary that I want to talk about just briefly. One being how he was able to have an impact on culture. Uh, one of the elements of the documentary highlights the fact that when there was a time of crisis and part of what started his show uh, was the assassination of Robert Kennedy. The very first week that he produced Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, his show centered around the idea of assassination, which was very, very taboo at the time. I didn't know that. And to have a children's show that I kind of tackled that kind of issue that early on was revolutionary. And not knowing that and seeing what came of that in the 80s and then the 90s started giving me an idea of saying, this really makes sense. Like, 
this guy had an agenda and he was consistent in that agenda throughout its 20 plus year tenure. And, uh, and it just, it just amazed me how from the very beginning, Fred Rogers had this vision and it was successful in, in casting that. You know, I actually wrote down some notes about that scene because it impacted me as well. Um, when they talked about the assassination stuff, what stuck out to me the most was how he sat and listened. He was completely still, completely silent and completely attentive to what the child had to say. He wasn't immediately trying to project an opinion or Mm -hmm. fix something before the kid had the opportunity to talk. And I think it reminded me that that's something that we have a hard time with in our current day and age. We're very fast paced as a society, no matter where. I mean, even in Arkansas, you're fast paced now. Imagine, you know, places like Seattle and New York, we're going 90 minutes or 90 miles an hour at all times. And Mr. Rogers reminded us that we have to sit and we have to listen to each other. We can't just already be projecting into that next thought. And he even talked about this. I think there, there's a quote where he says, you know, one of his goals for children programming that was so counter to the times was a lot of slow space, but no wasted space. Exactly. And that's something else that fascinated me was the, the highlighting of the moments in his show where there was no dialogue, nobody talked. Sometimes there wasn't even any music. It was just silence, but it was purposeful silence to allow you the opportunity to be able to focus in on what he was talking about or what he was demonstrating. Um, After the documentary, my wife and I were, of course, like many people, inspired. And we have a five-year-old here at the house that we wanted to just inundate him with Mr. Rogers episode. So gratefully, having Amazon Prime, we have the best of Mr. Rogers going on. And I just queued up a random episode and it said something about uh, how orange juice is made. Because I always remembered that in a lot of his episodes, one of the segments was he would <laughs> plug in the videotape into the wall and it would magically create this, you know, show us this video. And my son was just fascinated with that. But there were moments of that stoppage or slowdown time or silence where he would show you the inside of the orange and you could just see him sort of just handling it just very meticulously and very delicately. And we don't see that a lot today. What I like is that we're seeing iterations of it in some of the children's programming where we have more something that he did early on, which was talking to the audience. This was something that I think has proven to be very effective in some of the younger kids shows that I've become familiar with, with my son is that they'll ask, they'll break the fourth wall and ask you a question pause for two or three seconds and give you a chance to answer that question, to create that participation aspect of it. He was a pioneer of that. I think him along with Sesame street gave us that opportunity to participate in what he was doing. Um, Something else that I was really gravitated towards was his intentionality with separating reality from fantasy. So there's the land of make-believe, which I was very familiar with, but he was very purposeful in being able to say, look, when I'm talking to you, Mr. Rogers, this is the real part. Now let's go into the laminate of make-believe and let's pretend this happens. And he made a point to never be in that set, although he voiced all of the puppets, which again, I didn't necessarily know that. Um, but to be able to be that responsible with that, it almost 
as a parent, I wrestle with when does my kid embrace this fantasy of a TV show and how do I have a conversation with him saying, you know, that's not real and trying to justify that. Mr. Rogers gives us that. He gives us permission to make, to, to live in a land of make-believe knowing that it's within those parameters of not being real, but still having value. And that's something else that I think made his show incredibly successful was that he could create reality and fantasy and be very purposeful in both and very separate in both, but also have an equal amount of powerful message behind both of those sections. Yeah, man, you're absolutely right. And I, I really like that it opens up by uh, using a quote from him where I believe he's playing a piano and he's being interviewed and he says, my job is to help guide children through the modulations of life, which is a beautiful quote. Um, one of many, many in this documentary that will tug on your heartstrings in a big way, mm-hmm. but they tug on your heartstrings because you know in your heart immediately that what he is saying makes sense and is real. And it's something that is resonating within you, your natural being to be good and to put kids first. And and these things were, I mean, what he tried to do was radical at the time. Um, and it was just, it was amazing. He talks so much about love, you know, and inclusivity. And that's a, just a huge, huge part of what this documentary focused on, you know, him saying love is it the root of everything, love or the lack there of it, which mm. is something I preach all the time. I see you know, kids that my friend or my, sorry, friends that my kids have grown up with. And you can tell the ones that don't have active parents that are engaged in their lives every day. Whereas my kids know that they have that and they are constantly being welcomed into my world. You see what, what the difference is in kids who are clearly not given that same level of attention. And that's what Mr. Rogers um, was hitting on. I, I was also drawn to the fact that he was a minister. I had no idea that he was ordained and that he spoke a lot about how he used his child development to be his method of ministry mm-hmm. in his life. Um, that it, you know That was never more evident than that moment where they're interviewing one of his sons and he says – do you know how hard it is to live up to basically Jesus? Like I, I my dad is, <laughs> is no, more or less, he is the closest thing we maybe have had to a Christ type mm-hmm. figure. He, he lived the way that he, you know, preached in a sense. And we don't see that anymore today. Right. That, um, yeah. It's just, it's so powerful. And it, and that was the other big thing that I pulled away from this was speculation on his personal life and whether or not it was inconsistent with who he was on screen. And I absolutely loved uh, one of the interviews with his, I think it was called the floor manager. I guess it was a stage manager essentially. And he was, he was addressing the rumors that Fred was Fred Rogers was a Navy seal that he had tattoos and that's why he had wore sweaters. And he was completely, and you get to know him throughout the the documentary. So when he says this, you're almost laughing and nodding and affirming when he says, Fred comes from money. You know, he, he came from a very well-off family. He wouldn't know how to, I don't know how it was like tie his, you know, tie a shoe or 
use a knife, let alone kill somebody. Uh, just to articulate the fact that he was getting across the point that what you saw on television was who you saw in real life. And to a lot of people, as the documentary sort of points out, that's hostile. Because I think that maybe as a culture, we don't want to believe that someone who is inherently portrayed as good on screen, whether it's on the big screen, small screen, could absolutely be that way in real life. I know in the sports world, Tim Tebow gets a lot of flack for that because of the fact that he is consistent in his behavior. And for a lot of people that comes across as abrasive, for others it comes across as just very encouraging. But I think Fred Rogers got that in his day because of the fact that he didn't change who he was. And I think that's what made him such a strong role model, a strong figure, both on and off screen, because he was the same guy with every person, with every child, with every adult. And his message did not change throughout his life. No, you're right. Absolutely right. And I I miss him. And I wish that we had someone like him. The fact that he switched his episodes up to being topical to where he was the first voice to kids in moments of national tragedy. Like, I wish that we had that now. Mm -hmm. I really, really do. Because, um, you know, the world could use some Mr. Rogers right now. That's absolutely a fact. Uh, I, I kind of want to end this with a quote of his because there's so many uh, that are in this documentary. Um, but this one really stuck out to me a lot. And I think it's important for everybody to know this and to hear this. He said, you are special means you don't have to do anything exceptional or sensational to have other people love you. That's a fantastic quote. It is. I mean, and, and, and for me, it's at the heart of, of a Christian value um, that you are loved simply because you exist. And, uh, and I hope that everyone can feel that. And that's what he tried to ensure everyone knew um, and understood. So, yeah, this is a great, great film. I mean, I would never go to the f- movies to see documentaries. This is not a common thing for me. Um, even going to press screenings, I don't go to documentaries that often. So I highly, highly, highly recommend people go see this in the theater. Um, it's a cool, cool experience to see it with other people around you. Yeah. Everybody balling, everybody connecting with it. Yeah. We got the chance to sit next to a teacher and she was completely engulfed in it. Um, at the very least, if it comes to town, just go see it. Not even just for the theater experience. That's kind of a plus one, but to be able to experience it, period, because I don't think it drops on DVD until like September. So if it comes close to your town, give yourself an opportunity and go see it. And watch it with your kids. I'm excited to get a chance to show it to my teenagers once it does come out on you know, Blu-ray and own it and, and revisit it just as a reminder. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what they think. Yeah, well, I will let you know for sure. Maybe cool. we'll let the listeners know too. <laughs> well, thanks for indulging me in that. And now... It's time for some announcements. That's right. I thought you were going to skip over them completely and just, they're actually quantum announcements, Patrick. They just are. For the record. Can we use well, quantum as many times as possible in this episode? I hope we can. <laughs> done. Done. Deal. Um, <laughs> I'm in. Um, all right. So, listeners, a couple quick things. We wanted to tell you once again about premium picks. This is a new thing we started up just about maybe, I don't know, a month ago, a little under a month ago. What we're doing is we're giving you the opportunity to sponsor an episode if you wish. That way, if there's something that you want to hear us cover and talk about, 
you can make sure that gets done. We have a couple different methods for you to do that, one of which is kind of crowdsourcing a movie for us to cover, where you chip in shares and you contribute to a piece of that pie with other listeners, and then once the total is met, we will cover that film. Um, Or you can just go all in and pony up the cash, and we will cover whatever it is that is on your mind, within reason, obviously. We're keeping our clean podcast clean, so don't get crazy. But that being said... There's a couple of ways to do this. So just check out the website. It's under the menu option at the top that says support the show. It's called Premium Picks, and it will give you the details. There's a discount as well for our current patrons. So if you're one of those, uh, feel free to experience a cheaper cost. We want to give you a benefit as well. And the first one we're covering, the reason I'm bringing this up, is going to be later this month. So one of our patrons spoke up and said they really wanted us to talk about this movie, Life is Beautiful, and we're going to cover it at the end of July. I think, other than anime, this is our first true foreign film that we will be covering on 150 episodes plus. So I'm really excited for that. Um, And I'm also excited to cover this because it's supposed to be very, very good. Although I'm not thrilled about the fact that I'm probably going to cry. I've heard that it's an emotional tearjerker. Dude, you're that's your thing. You cry. It's okay. That's true. I'm not really thrilled about reading subtitles, but I can get over that. If you can get over the need, you know, the, the crying. I think so. See, we're getting out the like digs now so that we don't have to do those on the actual episode, right? <laughs> we can be completely sweet and nice to the movie while we're talking. About it. Exactly. But anyway, check out Premium Picks. It's a new thing, and we would love to have you throw us some support, and uh, we'll cover something you want us to cover. Last, we just want to also give you a little nod to a podcast we love. So here's In Session Film. Hear about all the great stuff that they are doing right now. Hello everyone, this is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay, yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Listen to the In Session Film Podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not how this <laughs> works, sir. All right. And with that, let's get into our review. As always, this will be a spoiler-filled podcast. Be sure to go see the movie if you don't want to be spoiled and then come back and enjoy the conversation with us. So I want to kick us off with our one-word takeaway. This was interesting. I was hoping for... Is that your word, interesting? You know, no, I'm not, because that's very generic. I don't want to use interest. If if I can get away with not using interesting in any of my one-word takeaways throughout the lifetime of this podcast, I will feel like that's a win. I know we've only been doing this for, I don't know, six months or so now, but do you intentionally try to not reuse words? Because I have made that a goal. I, yes and no. I don't have a list of words that I've used. Uh, Yeah. Uh, But if there's a word that really stands out to me that I know that I've used, I'll say, I'll, I'll preface it by saying, I know I've used this word before. And then I maybe try to come up with something really clever to say, this is why I'm using it this time. So you don't go to the thesaurus like I do and look for, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that thorough. (laughs) Well, my, my one word for this film, and this was very obvious to me leaving the theater is the word tech. Um, I recently rewatched a short film by a company uh, called red giant. That was 
created to show off some of their new special effects software. At least it was new at the time uh, that they developed. I, I love the concept of this where they're advertising, but doing it in a way that's very clever. It was entertaining, mesmerizing, and, and, and the creativity that was used was pretty, pretty spot on. And I couldn't really help but think of the same thing about this film. And I, I know that the folks at Disney and Marvel Studios have got a lot of stuff going for them. And so I didn't think that this was necessarily a one-to-one comparison to that. But man, tech was on full display with shrinking and growing buildings and cars, truth serum, and pretty much quantum everything. If you could put quantum in front of a word, it was probably going to be used. And honestly, it was almost too much at times, especially near the beginning of the film, because I was going, okay, whoa, 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 can we step back and not get so tech happy? Because you're going to spoil it by the end of the movie. Uh, we haven't even gotten to the big you know, action sequences yet. But I found myself thinking, okay, I get it. And it wasn't a deal breaker for me by any means. It definitely didn't deter my enjoyment of the movie. Um, because like the Red Giant short, it all worked towards making that narrative better. It, And maybe it's bad that that's what stood out to me for my one word takeaway. But at the same time, it wasn't distracting either. So I feel okay saying, yeah, okay, I'll give it, I'll, I'll say tech for this one. Well, I think that's very fair because there is plenty of tech. There is no doubt about that. And my word ties into that, I think, in a pretty big way. I went for the low-hanging fruit, Patrick. My word is quantum. Uh, And I did pick this before your intro and before I knew that you were going to make some quantum jokes to start this episode off. (laughs) And I should have known that was coming. But the thing is, man, for better or worse – The one thing that I will always think of most when I remember this film is that word. That and the awesome ant names like Ulysses S. Gurr Ant and Ant Onio Banderas because he's a badass. But seriously, I felt a bit overwhelmed by the science talk like you were referencing. And it really did lessen my own connection to this film emotionally because I couldn't logically make sense of, of much of what was going on for this entire story. Even taking into account the sci-fi comic book nature of the story and the fact that I have to have some level of disbelief and an acceptance of kind of crazy out there concepts. But Overall, I mean, it was still a more personal story than the universe affecting problems that we see in most MCU films. And of course, you know, coming right on the heels of Infinity War, it's a dramatic difference uh, in tone and what is actually taking place here. So I had a really good time and I enjoyed it yet again as a lighthearted action adventure quantum comedy sequel. Yeah, I think that Ant-Man sits in the same category to an extent as as Spider-Man does and that it feels homegrown. It feels very grounded, local. And to me, I think that's needed in this universe that that Marvel has created because we get so many epic battles. We get so many epic problems that it's good to have a reprieve every once in a while. Ant-Man, I think, was a nice entry into the MCU. And I wanted to start off the conversation by asking you what your expectations were going into this sequel. I mean, Ant-Man is 
I, I don't want to say he's your favorite superhero, but he's definitely up there at the top. And were you more nervous or excited, both? How did you feel going into this? And how did that change or increase or decrease when you came out? Well, I, I wouldn't call him my favorite superhero. I mean, that's Batman and this was going to forever be Batman. I, I would say that of the MCU solo characters, I prefer his solo film more than any other solo film. Uh, he is my favorite in that regard. And Spider-Man is probably darn near my second, which is, again, same type of thing. Low stakes, home floor type story, right? Just, just a guy in his neighborhood trying to do his thing and get through life, not worried about the krill or krill or krill or whatever the heck the aliens are that are trying to destroy New York. See, I don't even know what they are, right? Who knows? But I'm worried about math and my homework. So that being said, Ant-Man. Yes, I love the original Ant-Man. And a big part of that is because of Scott Lang and his character being a dad who is divorced, who has this child that he just wants to spend time with. And he wants to reconnect and in his case, not mine, you know, come back from prison and build this relationship. So it's a very personal type of story that we can all find something to relate to in a way because we all have kids we can't all relate to being captain america and iron man and the hulk and so yeah i went in with extremely high expectations um they were a little bit maybe i don't know lessened in some way because i kind of knew this wasn't going to reach the heights of the first one i just didn't expect that they could do that uh, but I knew it would be very similar, and sure enough, it was very similar. Um, and I I think that maybe my expectations or wanting it to be so much like the first film did hinder my enjoyment somewhat. I don't know if I would blame the film for all of that or not. It's just a different kind of story. You know, it's not the same one guy going on a heist. Um, it is more of a team up kind of thing. I mean, it's right there in the title, Ant-Man and the Wasp, right? And so a big thing to me was how are they going to make this work? Is it going to be an Ant-Man film or is it going to be a Wasp film or is it truly going to be an Ant-Man and the Wasp film? Yeah, that's definitely a difficulty when it comes to any kind of sequel where you have a central character because it, that's what it's what makes me curious about the next Spider-Man entry. How is, is he going to just fight another? Yeah. I think it's far from home. I think is the, is the working title or maybe the official title for it, but you've got to expect that there's going to be some team up at some point because it's just the logical extension of what do we do with this character? We can't, we've established who he is or who she is what do we do with them at this point? And I think what the second movie does, what this second entry does, is it brings a sense of team upness to it, not only with the Wasp, uh, but also with with Hank and this little subplot, or not subplot, but the, I guess the A plot of the movie, which is what the movie initially starts out with, this idea of getting Janet, Hank's wife, out of the quantum realm. Now, I admit that I don't remember much about Ant-Man. I hadn't seen it since my theater experience. So 
I didn't get a chance to rewatch it before this. So I don't know how much was rehashed if this was new information. So I took it as the latter. And to me, I thought it was a great way to set up the story by giving us that backstory on Hank and Janet and particularly their relationship with Hope. And I, I wanted to know, did you like that opening? Did you like how the, not only how the story was set up, but did you like what this was going to end up becoming? Well, it's funny you ask that because I had a very <laughs> memorable experience with this opening scene. I, As it was taking place, I will tell you, first of all, it is an extremely on-the-nose rehash of okay. exactly what Hank tells Scott during the first film. I mean, almost down to some of the same scenes re redone or maybe they just use the footage again. I can't remember. It could have been that much similar, but so I was thinking right the whole time I'm going, Oh my gosh, why are we doing this? Really Marvel? Like you're so lazy that you have to, I mean, this is an episode recap. We've been watching the West wing. And so Netflix gives me the option to skip the, the episode recap. And I love that. And it felt to me like this was an episode recap and then I just needed to push skip until it gets to the end. And we realize that Hank is talking to Hope at this point. He's telling her this story. So then my interest in it kind of shifted. And I thought more like, well, oh, that's kind of witty. That's kind of clever. Like you, you use the same thing that he told Scott already, but now you're telling your daughter. And so we get a little extra information and it's got a little bit more personal flair to it. And then this whole scene for me, it was like being on a wave because I kind of came back down and I was like, then again, like, why has it taken you 30 years of her being gone to tell your daughter? What the heck? You've never literally told your daughter this story before. Cause it, the way he's telling it is it, if it's the first time that hopes ever heard this information in her entire life, she's been training as the wasp for over two years, according to the timeline. So I had a tough time and this was the first of many things that I had a tough time with when it came to, realistic scenarios and i i so the the scene was very much like 50 percenter for me i liked some of it aspects of it and then overall it was kind of like eh, I, there were things that took it away for me so i i think we can probably say that maybe not definitively but at least halfway definitively that this opening sequence was really giving us a in case you missed it or in case you forgot because I absolutely I, think so. Because I didn't see any of what you saw. I didn't catch any of that. And I, knowing that I don't remember if it was a different creative team that worked on this one than the last one, but it would make sense if it's a different team because they're going to say, okay, what can we take from the first one and build off of that? And so you have this conversation that then becomes basically the whole basis for this next entry into the, uh, into the, the Ant-Man universe. And then we get this extension of this quantum realm. Again, not remembering much from the first movie. I don't know if the quantum realm came into a lot of significance in it. But the quantum realm became the place that our characters were trying to end up getting to, or at least trying to get Janet out of. And uh, did you like that? Did you think that it was a strong place, a strong set piece when it came to that? So mainly the whole big plot around it. I, yeah. I love the visual representation of the quantum realm that was taken from 
the first movie, which did have a big part on the finale of the film, because that's what Scott does is he goes subatomic, just like Janet did to save everybody. And it ends up the difference being that he ends up coming back, right? Um, love brings him back. <laughs> I don't know why love didn't bring Janet back, but it brought Scott back. And, uh, and so then we get this extension of it. And I agree. I, I thought that that made logical sense in the story. And it is very, very beautiful to see it portrayed, but it is also extremely confusing. Uh, there's no sense at all being made of it. And there's random, like, you know, creatures that are alive, organisms or something moving around. I mean, he's got, when he, when Hank sees these organisms, I mean, he's gone so many levels down of micronization. I don't know how, if that's a word. It's a, of being quantumly small that, um, you know, who knows if this thing could exist or not. And frankly, Patrick, they spent so much time giving me science mumbo jumbo about the quantum realm. I just wanted to know simple things. I wanted to know, like, how did Janet eat for the last three years while she was in the quantum realm? And like, where did she get this cool hood and, you know, coat and things like that? Like, I know, I know it's a comic book movie um, and, and I'm fine with suspending belief for a lot of things. But because the film spent so much time trying to be specific, it made me think if you're going to go this hard on this quantum realm thing, like you need to be tighter. Does Agreed. that make sense? Oh, okay. absolutely. I mean, it's. I think I've talked about this before. I think it's one of the faults of Lost when they give you so many mysteries and so many questions to be answered. They beg to pay them off. They beg to have them answered. And you give us so much when it comes to this quantum stuff. In fact, I mean, it's very meta. Um, I think it's Bill Foster played by, um, played by, I keep wanting to call him Morpheus. <laughs> when I asked you who he was, that's what you told me. That's Lawrence exactly, Fishburne. Yeah, Lawrence Fishburne. Um, he was, he, he kept talking about the quantum realm and quantum physics. And I think it was, uh, I think it was Scott who said, do you guys just put the word quantum in front of everything? And I feel like that was sort of a meta statement about the, the writing in this. It's like, how much science can we throw in here to just up the cool factor and almost confuse our audience? And again, I can't speak to the creativity or the motives of the creative team behind this, but I feel like I'm kind of getting swindled a little bit by getting thrown all this information because you're hiding the fact that you're going to show us stuff and you're just going to kind of explain it away of like, Oh, that's quantum physics. Oh, that's quantum mechanics. Oh, that's the quantum realm doing its thing. And it, it leaves me somewhat dissatisfied as well. Yeah. That, that moment I was going to bring up that quote because in most movies I would love that quote. And I would like think that was so clever and witty again, because they were paying a nod to their own way of making, you know, something humorous in the film. They're making fun of themselves essentially. Mm -hmm. But then I realized like, why are we doing this? If you realize that you're overdoing it, why not just change the writing and not overdo it in the first place rather than overdo it and make fun of yourself for it? I, it didn't, it didn't work for me. It felt like that was something that I should have seen in a Deadpool movie. Yeah, I agree. And it felt like one of those things where they wanted to sound more sophisticated than they were. Um, and it could be that a movie like this 
unintentionally needed more or it felt like it needed more than it did. And I don't agree with, I don't think that's the case. I think this is a movie that didn't need much to be successful and to be enjoyable as both of us, I think can walk away saying that it was very enjoyable and we didn't need all the extra bells and whistles that came with it. The over science being one of them. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and, and I think when it comes to, well, first of all, when it comes to quantum realm, I also wanted to point out that the one thing that I didn't quite connect as well with, which was a common theme for me in this film is that it was like, not quite as good as certain other things, but it was still very enjoyable. Uh, inner space, something like inner space, where you're mm, exploring yeah. the inside of a body. That's interesting. That's compelling. I don't, once I've seen a couple visuals, man, it's like you're just giving me more, uh, you know, colorful Arizona screenshots from 2001. Like you're just showing me the same neat stuff over and over, but there's no, there's no reason to get excited about it. It's like, there's no, there's no context. There's no context. Where am I? Can I go there? You know, is this intriguing? No, it's just this beautiful landscape over and over these shifting things. One other thing that was intriguing about the main plot is it's contrast to the first story. Whereas the first story, the reason that I love it so, so, so much is I said, it's because Scott is spending the entire film trying to become a better father. The reason for the heist, everything he does is in service of getting himself to a place where he can be with Cassie. He needs to make money. He needs to be on his own. He does all of these things, not to save the world. He does them all initially to get to a place where he can be with Cassie. That is a plot I can get very connected to. This one starts off in its base. It's kind of similar because it's about the Van Dynes, Hope and Hank, who want to bring their wife slash mother back after the 30 years of being in the quantum realm where suddenly they've decided, oh, she could be alive, right? But it's just not as relatable to me because they have been so disconnected from this person. 30 years, they've thought this person was dead. So it's a lot harder for me to get behind the way that they are so hardcore going after it. At the same time, I do understand that drive and it makes sense how much they spend their efforts completely outside of the law and going up against crazy odds being ghost and the FBI and everything coming crashing down on them just to get Janet back. Like Hope and Hank are going to do everything they can because they are trying to save this person that they love and bring him back, which is exactly what Scott would have done in the first film to get a chance to be with his daughter. He would risk everything. Well, and you make a great point. And so I think what the film does really well is it, it goes full on in its investment of this plot, opens it up. That's the drive. However, the contrast of that is what I think you and I would both agree is probably a better opening sequence, which is actually the second scene of the movie. And it's the reestablishing of the relationship between Scott and his daughter as they play this make-believe. And first of all, I just wanted to say, I love the creativity that went into that set design, uh, not only from the crew that was on the actual set of Ant-Man and the Wasp, but even within this world where you got to believe Scott and his daughter just created this cardboard world where they were, they were getting ready to steal something <laughs> because that's who he is. But the fact that it, it shows how much he loves his daughter and how 
supportive of him, not necessarily his trade, but of him, she is and wanting to be with him and be a part of this. And it, it finishes it. That whole scene finishes so well because they go down that crazy cool slide that they've created out of cardboard. And it's like, I want to live in that house until I realize that <laughs> he's actually under house arrest. And it's such a great way to tell us a lot about what's been going on over the last couple of years, why he is. It's to me, I think that's really great writing. That's a really great way to get us into the world of Ant-Man because that's what Ant-Man's about. It's not about science, quantum realms and stuff. Again, I get why all this stuff happened before that scene before, because that's going to drive the whole thing. But at the same time, this is the familiar area. This is the thing that really made Ant-Man so successful was that father daughter relationship. And I know that they don't, they don't want to rehash that or try to milk that. So I get the creative decision, but at the same time, I felt like this was a stronger scene yeah, fantastic scene. One of my absolute favorite, almost my connecting point. That that good. I really loved it. And this is where I thankfully kind of got that jolt of energy back after that opening scene made me go, I don't know, on that little roller coaster I took. I loved it too, man. And for the reasons that you pointed out is why it was almost my connecting point. The idea of him bringing his daughter into this thing that he loved. Yes, it's stealing, which is terrible, but <laughs> it's no different than like, you know, me trying to get the kids to watch movies with me and evaluate them or the the joy that I would experience if my child gave me a connecting point after watching a film is what Scott would feel when his daughter successfully steals the, you know, trophy, world's greatest grandma, you know, or whatever. Right. And so I love that. And the set design's amazing. And I agree. The writing is so well done, the way that it just introduces us and ties us into that nod we got in infinity war about why he was at home and couldn't be there um it, everything's done perfectly and luis i gotta tell you so going back to the first film again that's another part that i think i love about those grounded films is you get a character that isn't a superhero that is a stud and same thing with spider-man homecoming why i love it mj you, and and his best friend, you get these humans that are part of humans like the others aren't human, uh, <laughs> non-superheroes, non-powers people who are an active, huge part of the story. And so we get to establish right here that they are still very close, you know, and that Luis is there working with him, living with him. They're they're best buds, man. And I love that because there there are no other Marvel films that I can think of that have this. You know, Captain America doesn't have a best friend that just sits at home and watches TV and goes to work every day at Amazon and comes, you know, back or whatever. Like that doesn't happen in those films, but it does in this one. And so that elevates it. And we got a cool introduction to reintroduction to Luis here. Yeah, we have a we have a little bit of um kind of the 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 Lewis and Martin relationship, the funny man and the the straight straight guy. And I love those kinds of dynamics. And that's a strength of really great comedic writing because you have to have a guy who's somewhat serious. And Paul Rudd's a great comedic actor. So he, he lands, when he lands lines, he does it very well, but he's, he's the deadpan guy. Whereas Luis is just the obnoxious best friend. One thing that didn't quite work for me this time was his trademark storytelling. I thought I got enough of it in the first film and 
you could see where it was going when he was being interrogated. Although the whole truth serum sequence, how it wrapped up kind of made up for that type of thing. What I enjoyed though, was the love that you could tell he have has for Scott and how much he wants not only to be a successful businessman, but also to make sure that Scott's taken care of and how much he, I love the nonchalantness of when the aunt takes over being Scott in the house and Louis sees him. And then his reaction is really just like, basically don't make too much of a mess. Like, it's like, this is just normal for him. I, I feel like if I were a, a hero or have a, a costumed hero of some kind that, that you would be the Louise to my, to my Ant-Man, you would have no problem with, with <laughs> that kind of world that you're living in or vice versa. Yeah. And I, I think, agree. I think the, the connectivity between that is what gives it its strength. Same thing with Spider-Man and, um, and his best friend along with his Ned. Group. Is it Ned? It's not Ned. I can't remember specifically. Oh. Oh, it might be Ned anyway, but we know you guys know who we're talking about. I think it's what really connects the audience to these characters. Whereas we can celebrate superheroics with Iron Man, with Captain America, with Hulk, but we can connect to these grounded characters who are going to high school and trying to figure out how to make a living because that's who we are. And we, we can be those people, whereas we can idolize the others. Well, this movie is called Ant-Man and the Wasp. And so we knew that there was going to be an entrance of Evangeline Lilly, who um, a friend of mine was quoted this weekend as saying, I could watch her uh, read from the telephone book. That's how much he adores her. And I, and I think she's fantastic. I've loved a lot of the stuff that she's been in as far as feature films. I enjoyed her in Lost. And she makes her entrance in such a, an entertaining way. And I wanted to ask... Do you feel like this was a team up or do you feel like this was more of a wasp than Ant-Man or, or what? How did, how did you feel coming out of this? You know, I don't know. I was torn. I really think that she's a good, strong female character. And I think that she is a good compliment to Scott, relationally speaking. And so ultimately the fact that she's his partner and his love interest works out well. I buy this relationship at the end. I did not buy quite the level of coldness that she had for him initially based on what we know of how they relation their relationship left off. I got some of the feelings of giving him the cold shoulder and being bitter about him going away and getting locked up and all this stuff and not trusting her to go with him. So I understood that. It's very common. Like that seemed like a, exactly what a person might feel like if their significant other did that. Um, but she did seem just almost too hard on him at first. I, I like where it ends up. I think once they start to get past the past and get into moving forward together and, and when the action starts, right. When they have to fight together, you see it, you see the chemistry between the two actors as well. The, the just grinning that's on their faces, the smiles. There's that great line uh, when Michael Douglas and Hank says to Scott, and he's like, um, if you're done staring at my daughter, uh, can we get on with it? You know? And, and it's just, 
those are the kind of, again, grounded scenes that I really love about Ant-Man. So I liked her a lot and her inclusion didn't bother me as much. If if this had been Ant-Man and the Wasp together on an adventure, I would have probably enjoyed it more than if it was Ant-Man, the Wasp and Hank Pym on an adventure together. Yeah, I think the advent, not advent, the the introduction of the main plot at the very beginning is consistent with our reestablishment of Scott and Hope that it feels kind of clunky. It feels like it's sort of necessary to get the story started and in this case get their relationship rekindled so that we can kind of get used to, get familiar with, get comfortable with what's going on. Because I think the plot overall ends up kind of leveling itself out as being pretty satisfactory. And I think that their relationship does the same thing on a smaller scale. I, by the end of the movie, bought their relationship in terms of their romance, in terms of their friendship. And I loved seeing them team up together. I loved seeing how her skills with the wings and all this other stuff complemented what he did with his various ants. And uh, in particular, being able to, when the, in the, the final battle, when he keeps, keeps growing and shrinking, growing and shrinking, how she's able to kind of come to his rescue. Some of it felt a little forced, but overall, I think by the end of the movie, we got, I think a very honest and very satisfying relationship resolution. Speaking of them, I had a, a Jen or so moment in this film. I was looking for it the entire movie. There's this scene in the trailer where they're in the fight and he says, you go low, I'll go high. And she says, I've got wings. Why would I go low? I couldn't find that in the movie. Did I miss it or was it not there? I didn't see it either, so it yeah. may have been cut for the. It may have been it, cut from the final. It must have been. So it was one of those I rebel things where I loved something in the trailer and was looking forward to seeing it in the movie, and then <laughs> it did not happen. So that was kind of a bummer because I thought that was a great line. Don't um, you cutting room floor? And I would have liked to seen it. Maybe it'll be in an extended edition or something. Maybe. But yeah, I really did, man. I I liked their relationship overall, and I I I just hope that they can. Give me another Ant-Man movie with her, but but bring it back down a little bit. Um, bring it back down to a more <sighs> less quantum-y level. And maybe that's a lesson that they will learn. Of course, if they're going to be back, and we'll talk to that in a little bit, we'll have to see kind of what the repercussions of recent events will <laughs> trigger uh, a different kinds of story. Who knows? Um, well, like any movie, we have our antagonists. And in this one, I identified three. One, an obvious one. Two more kind of started out as antagonists and ended up kind of being somewhat allies. But I wanted to get your take on each one of them. So we have, I'll just list them. We have Sonny Birch, uh, played by Walton Goggins. And he's our... He's our Southern gentleman who owns the uh, reputable hotel that ends up being not so reputable. Uh, we have Ghost, and I forget who plays her. I know that she's been in – I can't remember what she's been in. And then, of course, we have Bill Foster that we mentioned earlier, which um, is not – I don't think his name is mentioned that much 
in the in the movie. I think he's just considered Hank Pym's partner, former partner. Well, I can start with him because when I got home from the movie an hour later and I was looking at the notes, I remember texting you and saying, hey, who is this Bill Foster guy you're asking me about? Because I <laughs> could not remember his name. So that's that's how unmemorable his name was for me. Obviously, his character was memorable because, enough because it was Lawrence Fishburne. Um, yeah. y- you know, give him, give him, take him, leave him, whatever. I, he's, to me, he didn't have a ton of value in added to the story. I, I do, I guess, enjoy that he is this person who is gives us confusion. He might be setting them up and being bad, but then he tries to stop her from hurting them. And so really he's good hearted and in at the end and he really is just taking care of her. I do like that. I enjoyed that. It ends with him sticking by her side saying that they're going to do this together. I liked that. Um, just the aspect, the idea of someone, you know, being able to bring a, another human in adopting someone as it were in the, is the way he did. So I, I thought he did a good job of that. I, I did too. I think for all three of these characters, I felt like it was too much for the movie. I don't know that any one of them stood out as being like, not just the antagonist, but as being very solid in, in, in their being memorable. I mean, each one of them had a purpose, although some less than others. I, I was entertained by Sonny Birch, although I don't know what his purpose was other than being sort of like humor and being kind of a, that flat villain that is good. I mean, I don't mind a flat villain here and there. I mean, Waterworld's got it and it's good to have those little mustache twirling guys that you just root to get their comeuppance. But I felt like we, there's a, I felt like there's a missed opportunity with Foster and Ghost. I don't feel like we got enough of their relationship outside of the kind of clunky exposition that she gave. Um, I, I thought her design, I thought ghost design was pretty fantastic. The way we entered, we're introduced to her. It feels very mysterious, obviously, because she is just that she can, I don't know what she does. She can, I don't know. Phase. Phase. Yeah. She can phase. And I, I love the effect of that. Um, one thing that, that kind of bothered me about her though, was as she was telling the story and giving us the backstory about her and foster is she tells us like she's telling hope and, and Scott that she was promised as a result of working for shield that they would let her die or kill her. And she said they, they went back on that promise yet by the end of the movie, she's getting ready to die. And I'm going, well, aren't you getting what you want? I mean, you're suffering for sure, but isn't that, wouldn't that your end game was to basically have your life ended. And so that felt a little inconsistent to me. Yeah. I actually missed that. I don't, I don't remember her saying that. That, okay. <laughs> that is definitely not good uh, and does not consistent at all uh, with the way that the film plays out. In my opinion, I, you know, when it comes to first, when it comes to Sonny Birch, I'll say Walton Goggins is a great actor, but this is the third time in a row personally that I have seen him sticking out as the same exact type of character with his mannerisms from the hateful eight to tomb Raider re- earlier this year. And to now this character and tomb Raider and this character are darn near identical in, in ton of ways. He's good at it. He's fine at it. But again, 
could absolutely have been taken out of this film and I would not have missed him one bit. I felt like he was entirely unnecessary. I agree with you that all of these things bloated the film. Frankly, as much as Ghost is cool to look at, you could take Ghost out of this movie completely and just make it all about Hank and Hope needing Scott's help, even though he's on the verge of becoming free and going to try and get her back with yeah. you know, find some other simpler means of creating conflict. But they went big with the conflict and then they created two big conflicts. One being, you know, the arms dealer coming after him, which his whole plot line is dumb in my opinion. Like it's, oh, it's so generic that it doesn't fit. It plays it, for comedy. It, it does. It, that, that's what it does. And, and I'm okay with, if you're going to be honest about it, I mean, that's fine let it play for comedy because it was entertaining to watch, but yes, it did not add to the plot. And I thought that the resolution of ghost getting defazed or whatever by, um, by Hank's wife felt very deus ex, ex machina to me. It was very much like a, ah, uh, that just was not good at all. Yeah. I have two big problems with that. One is the trust issues, uh, you know, ghost could have ended all of this by just asking for help. Like, yes, ask for help. What, what I get it. And I guess for me, the way that I tried to enjoy this more is to think about it in terms of people's shifting perceptions. Ghost has a perception of the past that her parents were murdered and her dad is, you know, not a bad guy. Obviously, he was betrayed by Hank Pym. And so that has shaped the way that she believes Hank Pym will react and the way that she believes things will happen in the future. That happens for uh, Bill Foster as well. And it also happens for Hank, who argues and says, no, you know, I didn't treat him bad at all kind of kind of thing. And because of those perceptions, it made me think about how that influences us in real life, too. Like if you and I had an interaction in our past, you see it one way. I see it the other way. It influences how you're going to respond to a similar situation or connected situation in the future. Whereas all you really needed to do was say, Aaron, can you help me out with this? And I would have done it, but you don't trust that because of your way of viewing that past. And so that's what I saw happen here. And I was able to think about it in those terms and kind of find more enjoyment out of it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the fa- the ending is dumb to me. It's dumb. I really just think it's dumb. I cannot find any reason to believe that the quantum realm is now magical. And that's what you're telling me is that there is some sort of magic quality to it. When she starts inserting herself into another person and communicating telepathically and controlling people from the quantum realm, and you they lost me, frankly, it, it, right there. Um, it got all too plot conveniency then it started happening even in the action scenes when scott's suit perfectly malfunctions at the right time for humor and then perfectly works at the right time to save hope's life like everything went according to to the plot obviously but i just didn't feel like a natural kind of progression to me it just felt like yeah it's convenient convenient. it's very convenient and i think that's what leaves us satisfied but not amazed but with a movie like this you're not really expected to feel amazed and whether it's because it's a sequel or whether it's because it's more of a grounded and not 
necessarily. I mean, it's got everything that we didn't want in terms of of a good superhero movie with one being stakes. It doesn't have stakes at all. The, st- the, the stakes are, is Scott going to not be under house arrest by the end of this movie? I think that's the biggest question we're asking. And is the person that's dead going to come back from the dead or not? Right. That's really the depth of it. And that's what I was saying about why it's harder to relate to coming back from the dead than it is to not getting dead in the first place. Right. So, well, we've talked about the tech um, here and there. We mentioned it obviously in our connect, uh, not connecting points, but our one word takeaway. And so it's on full display here. And there were a lot of opportunities for us to get wowed. A lot of opportunities for us to probably roll our eyes a little bit. Did anything stand out to you? that you liked or that you didn't I'll never get tired of seeing stuff shrink and get big again. Never (laughs) ever period. Like this movie has a high floor for me because of the tech and that what it's all about. When he first shrinks the lab, my jaw dropped. I was not expecting it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. Right. And just, you know, it kind of gets overdone as most times this will happen in Marvel movies with the action. By the end, you're like, get it, like everything can shrink. But man, it, it's so f- amazing at the beginning. And then also the cars, every car sequence in this film with the cars getting big and little, I, that honestly, I you could have just given me a whole movie of watching that. It was amazing. It was so awesome. I mean, when the, the way that Peyton Reed films all of this action is so great because mm-hmm. you'll cut from, ah, in this big, and then the sound design and the score will pull back to, a, a, you know, a, a lower volume because you're now in the tiny car and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's so much fun and yeah. so cool to watch. So I guess if I had a favorite, it's probably the circular hot wheel container. Yes. That's that's a ton of different options of cars. To use. That's yeah. That's, that's was going to, that was going to be mine. And to me, I'm almost envisioning this is going to be the basis for the next fast and the furious. Yeah, you're going to have Ant-Man, the Wasp, you're going to have Pym's technology somehow making it in to the next Fast and the Furious. And we're going to have shrinking and growing vehicles coming out. And you're going to have uh, Vin Diesel talking with a a, a helium-based uh, voice from his little miniature Hot Wheel car. I think it's going to be fantastic. Um, well, let's finish off before we get to our connecting points. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the credits and, of course, the, uh, the mid-credits scene. But first of all, I was equally as fascinated with the credits themselves as I was with the entire movie. Like I could have watched those credits roll multiple times. I don't know if those were done digitally. I'm assuming they were, but if you were making a model of all these particular moments of action in the movie with clay figures or action figures, to me, I was blown away visually. And I I, I don't, I almost hope that it was not done digitally because that's a lot of crazy good effort that goes into making those, uh, making those things happen. So I, I love the credits there. Yeah. They reminded me a lot of the credits of Kubo and the two strings and the way yes. we see different things from the film uh, presented in a different artistic manner. Right. Uh, I loved it as well. They stuck out to me because anytime the credits can be unique, you're going to get our attention. And and I like that because you need to give us something to make us want to stay. And before we, I know we're going to talk about the mid credits scene, but I knew there was going to be two. And so I stuck around for the end and 
I wasted 10 minutes of my life and I gave it to Marvel because Marvel knows I'm a schmuck and they know that I'm going to do it. But what are they gaining from me doing that? Right? Like, are they gaining anything by forcing me to watch a list of people's names that can, you know, create a sidewalk from here to China? I'm not really reading them. I'm getting no value out of doing that. And they're really getting nothing from me out of doing that either. And so that final scene, it was a big letdown for me as far as like, why did I stick around for that? Right. But during the actual credit scene, it makes it worth waiting for the mid credit scene. So I loved the credits in general. So what you're describing to me is what it's like to wait for an attraction at one of the Disney world um, theme parks is the cre- and again, it makes sense that this is Disney. They have the while you wait entertainment. When you're sitting in line waiting to do Mission Space, you're getting briefed by Gary Sinise as if you're an astronaut. You're getting you're walking through what looks like Mission Control, getting a chance to mess with knobs and dials and things like that. Same thing here. You're getting a chance to see people bring out their creativity in a way that you don't get to see during a film. And I think in credits need more than that. I I remember going to a a design conference and there was a full exhibition section on intro credits, like intro sequences, because that helps set a tone for what the movies, for what a movie can be like. It it can do that. Sometimes it's a cold open. Sometimes it's, I I always, I'm always going to be fascinated with the, uh, the Ang Lee Hulk intro credits and how the uh, liquid flies off of uh, of the of the letters of the credits. That's always going to be just memorable to me. And I think these closing credits do that same thing as they leave us kind of entertained. And it takes a lot to um, to get us to that mid credit scene and ultimately to the end credits. I left. I didn't stay for the end credits. I just read about it and I was like, I I knew it was it wasn't going to be a stinger of any kind. It was going to be more of a an in joke, just like most of the end credits are. And when I saw an ant was going to, I just left. I was like, okay, I can get back to work now. I can save myself a couple of extra minutes here. But let's talk about the mid credit scene. Did we expect what we expected as far as like the end result? Well, I expected it to be the tie to Infinity War. Yes. Sure. Yeah. But yeah. it but. still caught me somewhat off guard because I didn't know how it was going to happen. And I think that it works so well with the flow of the story in this movie mm-hmm. that you were just like, okay, cool. So there now, Oh, and then honestly, I think the, the truck design of having the quantum tunnel in the back of it is, is a great misdirection because it gets you laughing and thinking about that and focusing on that again. And then Scott's in there and you know, the moment that he says guys, and realizes they haven't responded. I mean, I was like, <gasps> and I mean, it, you, you know, immediately one guy in my theater yelled out, damn it, Thanos. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> I was like, yes, thank you for saying what we are all thinking right now. So yeah, I loved it. I thought it was one of the best, perfectly, perfectly crafted yeah. uh, end credit scenes that we've seen. Yeah, I thought so too. And obviously it perfectly ties into Infinity War. But I think for me, it was one of those where just the the same reaction I had to the end of Infinity War, the questions I had were equally as weighted with with this one. I mean, my question is, how is he going to get out of the quantum realm? Who's going to come save him? Um, and of course, that'll get answered at some point. There's 
a lot of criticism going around right now about the fact that Marvel sort of put their chips all on the table because we know what the slate of movies that are coming out. But I'm still in that world of suspending my disbelief and assuming anybody's that anybody that's been dusted <laughs> could potentially not come back. Right. And yeah, um, and so and so I want to I want to stay in that world. So I thought it was it was very fitting. I did too, but I'll say this: I don't love the quantum realm stuff, and so I'm a little concerned because now Scott's stuck in the quantum realm, and he's trying to collect healing quantum energy, which is a joke. Give it, give it up. It's just so dumb. And so I'm already like trying to figure this out. So obviously, him getting out of the quantum realm is going to have to play into Infinity War somehow. And now I'm thinking this quantum healing energy that he's collecting for Ghost is probably going to have some sort of role in how they defeat Thanos. I'm thinking, well, maybe he's going to meet uh, Gamora in the quantum realm or someone else, you know, that like got stuck there. And then, you know, that's how they're going to get out together. Like, I mean, it'll be intriguing to find out, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, oh, that means I got to live in this annoying quantum realm science (laughs) mumbo jumbo confusion even more. Well, let's get out of the quantum realm and get into our connecting points. Our quantum connecting points? Our quantum connecting points. Well, 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 mine's just a regular connecting point. Maybe yours is a quantum one, but I'll stick to the regular one. Uh, Do you want to start or you want me to? I'll go. Okay, go for it. Well, my connecting point, ultimately, I had several moments that were small that I liked quite a bit. Um, But the one that you know, I left the film with was the last one. And that had something to do with it, I'm sure, because none of them were staggeringly powerful. But it was Scott Hope and Cassie at the drive-in. And, you know, being a film that's played much more for actions and laugh than heartfelt connections, it wasn't really easy for me to find one. But it did elicit a strong emotion and resonate in this scene. Um, And it really did. It lingered with me because When Cassie is asked what she wants to be when she grows up, she says, I want to help people like my dad. And I pulled out two things from that. One, it made me think about how super sweet it is for a daughter to look up to her father. I immediately looked right at my daughter who was sitting next to me as soon as she said that and kind of grinned and smiled. And she looked at me and smiled. But it also, this phrase to me signals a recognition of what I think superheroes are all about, not just solving the world's problems and protecting the world from these huge problems like aliens or um, evil super beings, but inspiring others to do the same and helping people on a lower scale. It's like what we talked about in our, what we've been up to section in Mr. Roberts, it's love your neighbor thing, right? So her line gets me kind of both personally as a dad myself it also gives me hope that the heroes in this world are being looked up to for the right reasons. That's fantastic, man. And uh, it's one that's definitely memorable. I know that um, anytime we get a chance to have a father-child relationship, I'm always going to gravitate towards it. Of course, being a father of a son, it's a little different, but I can definitely see how that connects with you. For me, mine was more of a, a connection to understanding my desire to be a better cinematic writer. Um, I'll talk more about this next week, but I just finished up the 48-hour film project again this year. And something that I realized in my role this weekend was uh, two things. One, I have a lot more to learn about directing, and which was kind of a known. But also, I write better comedy than I do drama. 
um, when it comes to drama, I have a really difficult time. And in the world of the 48, you have to just be completely spot on with your drama to really grab your audience because you only have four to seven minutes to really grab them, which is why most people go the comedy route because a laugh is pretty cheap. You can get that pretty easily. And in watching the West Wing, and you can probably attest to this, it's a drama that has great moments of levity. And so it knows when it needs to be serious, but there are times when it knows when it needs to be light. And Aaron Sorkin's fantastic at this, of being able to write moments of levity within a drama. Ant-Man and the Wasp is the opposite of that. And I think it's effective in being able to be a movie that is a comedy that has tender moments of drama. Your connecting point is obviously one of those. For me, the moment that came in my opinion, was that symbiotic moment between Scott and Janet. The fantasy portion notwithstanding, there's something very, very cool about this. Just like a drama should have those great moments of levity, this film does the opposite equally as effective. And when Scott forms that symbiotic relationship with Janet from inside the quantum realm, Paul Rudd has this fantastic balance of being both hilarious and sincere in his portrayal of her. That thing could have completely bombed for me. It could have completely come across as cheesy or, oh my gosh, eye roll. But instead, you're kind of invested at this point. By the time he gets through his whole beef, his whole, not beef, his whole performance, you're like, hey, this is Janet. And the way he looks at Hope, I felt like Janet was looking at Hope. And it's, but it's this really interesting duality because it's like, it's Paul Rudd playing a woman and coming across with these feminine characteristics, but it's so tender. And I believed it. I believed that it was Janet talking to her daughter and talking to her husband. And it could have taken me out of the movie completely, but it didn't. And it was precious. And I was invested so much in the narrative at that point that I absolutely just adored it. I, I remember smiling, but not smiling and shaking my head going, this is dumb. Smiling and going, man, Paul, you can pull off some really great comedy and drama in the same moment. And at the end of it, I was like, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to write like that. And hopefully I can someday. <laughs> I thought you meant you wanted to be able to like phase shift into somebody telepathically or whatever. I was like, wait a second. No, that's not my, that's not my, uh, that's not my end game right there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a good scene, man. I, I do agree. I think without Paul Rudd doing that, it fails almost 99% of the time. I think he's perfect in order to convey the humor while keeping it tender. Yeah. And I enjoyed it despite the whole time thinking it was stupid and not accepting the reasoning behind it and being annoyed by the reasoning, like the fact that it was happening at all. But it, you know, you're right. You kind of overcome some of that because it's done so well. It's executed at such a high level. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, I would have loved it to be make more sense, but <laughs> Given what we know or given what we do, you know, had for this story, it still works. And that's awesome. Taking it with a grain of salt. Well, man, I enjoyed this conversation as quantum salt. Actual. Quantum salt. Take it with quantum salt. <laughs> well, how about social media? Where do people, if people want to find you and uh, continue the conversation or talk about pretty much anything related to movies, uh, where can they find you, sir? You can find me on Twitter at quantum Aaron. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Give it up. Okay. At <laughs> Film Aaron or tweeting from our official account at Film. And you can also find me extremely active in our 
Facebook group, which there are links to in every episode show notes, as well as on our website. And of course, you can type in Feel and Film in Facebook and guess what? We'll come up. It does ask you a couple of questions to join. We don't have it um, open, wide open. I mean, we approve everyone who requests to join, but it just keeps the group uh, a little bit more contained. And so far, so good because we have an awesome collection of folks that are in there and it's a really good time. It never gets out of hand and people have a great time discussing things. There's a topic that was posted today uh, asking what recent franchise film that came out in the last five years would you remake and why? And it's gotten a ton of comments. So if you want to talk to other movie lovers, we encourage you to come be a part of our community. We would love to have you. Fantastic, man. And if you want to find me, you can check me out at Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. Next week, we are bringing back our man Andrew Dice from Screen Rant to talk about one of his favorite movies and one that I actually haven't seen yet. And that would be Troy. Yes, Aaron's giving me the surprise. I can't believe you haven't seen it. Oh, I'm excited for you to see it. (laughs) It's a dude movie. It's a dude movie. The only thing I remember about it from the conversations when it first came out was the the Brad Pitt. Accent failure? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, something like that. It's not good. It's very bad. So we can probably forego that and enjoy the rest of the movie as is. But just look at him and his glistening pecs and don't worry about what's coming out of his mouth okay i'll 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 try to do that i guess or maybe not do that (laughs) in any way it should be a fun time we're always excited to have andrew on to to talk about movies with us so be sure to check that out and that's all for us so until next time stay positive and keep feeling quantum filled